Welcome to Lit Up. This is a favorite episode because it's with a friend of mine, Meg Mason. So for this one, I asked Meg over to my dad and stepmom's home and we drank tea and Meg brought over some of her favorite books for me. So I'll include those in the in the notes on the website so you can get a sense of her reading taste as well. I think you will absolutely love this show. We talk all about her new novel, You Be Mother. You Be Mother is about an unlikely friendship. What do you do when you find the perfect family, but it just happens to not be yours? This is a charming, funny, and irresistible novel about families. It's also about friendship and little white lies. Things get a little complicated, to say the least, and we'll get into why and how in our conversation. My guest today is Meg Mason. She's a journalist. She writes monthly for Elle. She's the agony aunt for Inside Out magazine, and she was GQ's female affairs correspondent for four years. There's more. Her career began at the Financial Times and the Times of London, and her work has since appeared in the Sunday Morning Herald, Rush, Stella, Grazia, and Cosmo. She's also served as the managing editor of the Sunday magazine in Australia. Her first book, A Memoir of Motherhood, called Say It Again in a Nice Voice, was published in 2002. However, we are here today, and I'll tell you the story where we'll get to how we met, because it's such a, a, lovely, um, a lovely thing to have happened to both of us. But I have Meg um, on my couch. Actually, we're at my dad's apartment in Paddington in Sydney, and we're here to talk about her first novel and a book that made me actually cry, like real tears. And it's, I connected with it on so many levels. And I know we have listeners in America and in England and in Australia and I think some in Germany. But um, even though it's set in Sydney, it's a very universal story of friendship. Um, but let me tell you just a little bit more. And then Meg, say something because yeah, no, you are I'm so here. Sorry. I'm just listening to this fascinating introduction. And I'm like, you're listing the things I've done. I'm like, that sounds so tiring. That sounds, why am I like still here? Anyway, thank you. That was a lovely introduction. Well, I primed you with several coffees. So yes, hopefully you you'll, you'll wake up. Um, okay, so we're here to talk about Meg's first novel called You Be Mother, out by HarperCollins. You Be Mother revolves around two gorgeous but struggling leading ladies. The first is 21-year-old Abby, who's fallen pregnant to Stu, an Aussie exchange student. Abby is so ready to give up her life in London and move across the world to Sydney to be with him and to raise their three-week-old son, Jude. Our other leading lady is Abby's neighbour, the wealthy and charming Phyllida who's recently lost her husband and is rattling around her huge house alone having well because of all because all of her four children have moved away exactly and she talks about why she bothered to have so many if they were all going to desert her in the end so they're both both of these women have kind of arrived in this place well abby's arrived in this place and they're both sort of consumed by loneliness i guess of this new you know a new mother and a new widow which i always think is sort of you know, these stations in life that couldn't be more badly defined. You know, you're not 
in both those cases, you're not required to be anywhere. There's no structure to your day. No one's kind of expecting you to sort of turn up anywhere. So it's completely, they're both so anchorless. And I guess that's where I began with kind of explaining how that friendship blossomed so quickly. You just said something so interesting too about like fearing that your children will leave. You're a mother of two. Do you ever get that sense that you're already afraid of them leaving you? Well, I think you don't for so long because you just can't believe how constantly they're there. But then, you know, my children are sort of in their early teens now and you think, oh my goodness, in four years they could, you know, they're gone and then it changes your life so much. Are you still, you know, actively mothering if they've gone overseas? And I think you have to redefine yourself again as sort of, you know, that most critical period of your life is over. But I wonder if you look back on it and it seems so short in terms of the entire span of your, you know, 70, 80 years. It was, what, 18 years of parenting and it's suddenly over so quickly. So I think, oh, my goodness, I, I better find something else to do before they leave. So well, you have. I will write <laughs> novels and then hopefully won't be so bereft. So let's, your memoir was all about being a mum young. Yes. When, uh, firstly, you're from New Zealand. Yeah. And then I moved to Australia. I think I was in my late teens I, or did one year of high school here. Um, and then, you know, got married pretty young, 22, which is kind of young by today's standards, I guess. Um, and then we moved straight to London. And um, by 25, I had a baby and was constantly mistaken for the nanny because 25 year olds just don't genuinely sort of generally have babies. So that was kind of um, immediately, I guess, put me out of sync with my peers and they were all still at work. And I was kind of, this is probably where every description of the loneliness comes from in the book because, and especially that's probably the one place that I've used to explain Abby's experience or draw on that for her experience is just the sense of like, how do I fill these hours and hours of this day, this kind of rudderless expanse of time? You know, I, I sort of always described it as the click when my husband would pull the door closed in the morning and off he'd go. And I was like, okay, well, it's just 12 hours, you know, until he comes home, I'm sure we can find something to do. And, you know, that's probably where this Abby character began to evolve. And, you know, in London by myself, and I just remember walking you know, around London with a stroller and kind of Kensington Gardens or whatever by myself and thinking, where is everybody? You know, where am I supposed to be at this stage? So I think that's where I probably learned what that feels like to have to create your own experience and your own day and carve that up into little manageable chunks, which I guess is where Abby's found herself and in a foreign country as well. So, which I think she had kind of a, a incorrect picture of you know she didn't really know where she was going and arrived and realized she'd imagined it all wrong and it was just so different from what she knew so there she was kind of lost at the beginning of the book oh so I'm just imagining you and your London experience I read that you you know when you found out you were pregnant you were 24 and you just got your kind of dream job at the London Times yes what was the, and I, you know, and it was kind of a Greek island contraception missing, like mishap. <laughs> no, it was like one of those things I'm like, I'm sure it'll be fine. And it's like nine months later. But I mean, what a blessing, right? Like oh, it's all obviously. done and dusted. Now it seems kind of efficient. Like I read this story <laughs> literally last month saying millennial women are thinking about actually it would be hugely efficient to have my children really early because you're all done and dusted by your mid thirties, yeah. you know, and then you've got all the time in the world. And I do actually feel like that because, you know, I'm just 40 now and 
I sort of think, oh, I could have a whole nother career doing something different starting now, which is kind of exciting. It's very exciting. To find myself all over again. I love it. So when did you and your husband decide that it was time to move from London back to Australia? Um, So my daughter was one and I think, you know, we'd always known that we'd come home, but I think something about having a child makes you think, I need to go back to where I'm from. I need to, you know, sort of do... I need to mother the way I know how to do it. I didn't know the system. And I remember, you know, we were, it was the middle of winter and one of my older friends there who had children was like, right, we're going to the the indoor pool and then we'll get hot chocolates afterwards. You know, that's swimming. And I'm like, that's not swimming. That's not, swimming is, you know, a hot summer, beautiful outdoor. And I was just like, I don't know how to be a mother in this place. It was just suddenly foreign all over again. So we kind of, you know, made a run for it and came back. Well, I love that this comes full circle because Abby and Philida, they meet at a swimming pool. Exactly, which is a real pool here in Sydney. So there's this gorgeous, if you've ever seen a picture of the harbour from above, there's a lot of peninsulas that kind of come out into the middle of the harbour. And this is one of them called Cremorne Point. And it's exactly over the water from the city. So it's very beautiful and lots of sort of much older houses and down there along this track that goes right around it that you can walk around is this not especially well-known pool that's kind of over the harbour and it's fed by you know beautiful ocean water and hidden amongst all these trees and so it's this beautiful spot I think and it becomes you know their their meeting place and they're sort of that's how they meet that they're both there every morning and eventually they start chatting and then it sort of organically forms from there. So it's a friendship, it's an intergenerational friendship, which I think um, I've just thought about it a lot because in New York, I feel that that's far more common. Um, Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't, I I, wouldn't have, I didn't know because like I've had one or two older friends mm. in my life, which has just been amazing. And I, I love it. I just love sort of like just sitting there and listening to them just tell me, how it works that everything's going to be okay and just sort of I don't know if they feel wise but it certainly feels to me as though they're wise so I just think those friendships are so precious but maybe not explored that much in fiction I didn't necessarily feel like I'd read about one no I haven't either and also what each one oh look like why do we get into certain friendships anyway it's such an interesting question and when and why exactly and I think Obviously, in a sense that this is circumstantial for both of them because they're so new to what they're both doing at that time and they sort of cling to each other. But they discover, like I think the character of Philida, who's called Phil throughout the book, she loves a little project. Do you know what I mean? She's sort of this wealthy, imperious older woman who's probably never worked. You know, her husband was a barrister and I think four children, her house would have been sort of full of them and their friends and social events and all of that sort of thing. And then suddenly it's all gone. It's just silent. And, you know, she talks about pulling champagne flutes out of the kitchen cupboard and they're dusty. And she's like, this is the dusty flutes stage in my life. And so, you know, she suddenly latches on to Abby and thinks, oh, I could make some improvements. I could, you know, counsel her and coach her and shape her into this, you know, more confident woman. And so she starts to kind of do that. And Abby's so willing to be shaped because she's just lost and she's, you know, desperate to kind of, and metaphorically, I guess that's explored through the fact that Abby can't swim and Phil will teach her to swim in this pool where she taught all her own children to swim. So that's, I guess, where some of the overlap begins Mm -hmm. between a friendship and then Abby suddenly starting to see Phil more as that mother character, 
which is then where the complications ultimately arise because, you know, boundaries get blurred, all of that sort of thing. Well, there's a great quote that I love in there that I think you've, um, you know, it's a way that you've described the book and you've said, you be mother is a story about the families we have and the ones we want or the ones we think we want. Which are not always the same, the family we have and the family we want. And I'm such a, like, you know, observer of other families. And you definitely have, there's families, don't you think, where you just look in from the outside and they just seem so, you just idolise, you know, that sort of what looks so amazing. And of course it's messy and complicated, you know, on the inside as all families are. But I think, you know, for Abby, she's never seen into this world. She comes from this sort of like fairly miserable part of London, council house, and sort of her mother checked out a long time ago after a tragedy in their family. So she essentially raised herself and, you know, fairly grim as some London lives can be and then comes here and here's, you know, Phil's house that's full of art and rugs and, you know, velvet sofas and she's just never seen anything like that and is so desperate to kind of somehow have something of that for herself. And, and you know, that's the book I think came, well, the story came to my mind almost like as a series of little like stills from a film and one of them was this picture of Abby upstairs in this house where she shouldn't have been and wasn't invited up there and had sort of ended up there from a few different few different reasons and just that sense of trespass and her overstepping that line out of that desperation to kind of be a part of that and to be one of Phil's, Phil's children is sort of you know what she eventually wanted and made her do a few crazy things. Yeah, there's a scene that I love early in the book where Abby, because she lives in a kind of pretty plain apartment block that overlooks this kind of lush, beautiful home. And you can just imagine her looking down and seeing the bay window. Yeah, peering into the window. And the woman kind of looking out and wanting to kind of reach out and just have a part of that. I think we've all been there haven't we in some way exactly and even when she's sort of looking when she first gets invited to Phil's house and she's looking at all these beautiful objects and thinking how can someone own these things that serve no other purpose than just to be beautiful like she hasn't had that beauty in her life and suddenly you know it's kind of addictive like you kind of beauty is just so it's so amazing if you haven't been able to have that yourself and so she would look at sort of sneak glances around the room you know when Phil wasn't there and just think how can you own things with no purpose except to sort of you know feed feed that appetite so she's kind of blown away I guess and wants so much of that for herself. Another thing I love is when you know when you go to other people's family and you eat what they eat or you eat what their mum cooks and it's either you know a revelation and fabulous and one of the things I love about Abby so much is that they have this um, a meal that's you know know, when you go to someone's house and they cobble together things they open the fridge and they pull this out yeah a little and in some homes there is just this bounty of things that can come out of the fridge or the foods that Abby had never tried before and she kind of wasn't sure what some of it was and she was worried that there was no bread because how do you how do you have lunch without a sandwich like you know it's just sort of she called it posh sandwich fillings with no bread and she was so worried sitting there you know that private torment that you're having at someone's table going I don't actually know if I can swallow that you know 
whatever that is, is that trout, is that salmon? And she's sitting there thinking, I have to, you know, look. And then she can't drink out of her champagne flute without tipping her head all the way back. And she doesn't know how Phil's just doing all of these things. So all of that, she's so desperate to be taught and instructed and made into someone else because she's come there for a completely new life to be someone else. There's also one tip that I think everyone listening should steal from Philida's husband, Frederick. So Phil's late husband always said, if you don't keep a bottle of fizz cold, it says a great deal about your outlook. That you're not expecting anything good to happen yeah, because like you, you don't have, have the champagne on hand. Yeah. champagne on ice. Exactly, which is kind of, I guess, one of the stark differences between them because Phil's been so amply blessed and Abby's life has been so spare and lean that nothing good ever did happen. And so, you know, you can imagine that that would be something so enticing to her. Oh, yeah, I love that. And I think... I've got one in the fridge. Oh, do you? Oh, that's good. I should have one for today, I know, we should. One thing that it touches on, and I haven't been a mum yet, this um, isolation and loneliness that I've heard a lot of mums talk about, especially if they don't have their own mum in their city. Exactly, which I remember so Yeah, what was that like for you and was it different? the second time around or was your mum still in New Zealand? Yeah, no, I haven't. We haven't lived in the same country since I had children. So it was very much, you know, sort of me on my own trying to figure it out. I mean, I'm sure she would have loved to have been there, but, you know, there was oceans um, between us. But I think I remember so acutely this insane jealousy that I would feel desperate jealousy when I would see a mother my age or you know older whatever but with her mother and the mother would be pushing the stroller and you know the the my age Pierre would just be having this experience which I just couldn't believe could be that you could ring your mum when this baby was crying and say come and you know whatever and um even once I remember going to the supermarket and the, the my age mother was walking along in front of the mother pushing the cart and just pointing to what she wanted and just the mum would get it off the shelf for her and I'm <gasps> like, you just don't understand. And I would just be riven with this envy and, and sort of I think that's definitely, I guess, has, has come into the book on some level. Also the mother's group thing, you know, there's so much room there for satire. Exactly. But you do do it so well. And I think let's talk about class a bit, which I think we don't talk about in Australia a lot. Because, because we think we're classless, yes. but of course we're not. I didn't, it wasn't until I'd finished it and someone else read it, I think within HarperCollins and said, oh, this is a book about class. And I'm like, is it? Like I genuinely hadn't noticed, except of course it is. But I think I didn't, obviously you don't sit down and think I'm going to write a book about class. But of course there's, that's a huge division in the book. And, you know, the symmetry comes in because Phil has her own children who are trying to escape that life as much as Abby's trying to inveigle her way into it. And they, Phil's daughter, Brigitte, who's gone to London to try and be an actress is so privileged. And she is trying to, you know, sever those ties but still just can't quite break her dependency and you know she has this credit card that belongs to Phil that she just uses for emergencies that become less and less <laughs> real emergencies like she goes to Selfridges and has an emergency in the homewares department you know and she just can't quite break that last tie um yeah so she's having this hugely privileged experience and then and then Abby comes from something completely different why do you think these privileged kids 
want to break with their family and go elsewhere? I think in Brigitte's case, it's to be taken seriously and to prove that she can do this thing. She's had a bit of a mixed you know, in her 20s, she was a journalist and then she was a ceramicist and then she took a film course. And so finally, you know, she's settled on this thing that she wants to do. And she's an older sister who's become very successful. And so I think she's trying to, yeah, like stand on her own two feet, but it's so difficult. And she talks about when she's trying to justify the use of this credit card to herself, she thinks, well, you know, it was my mother who made me so dependent on middle-class comforts anyway. So she should keep paying for it because she's the one who, you know, has always propped me up in that way. So she sort of can't quite, you know, let go of it as much as she wants to be an independent woman. All these siblings seem to fall into the roles that siblings do. And I um, will we'll kind of say what they are in a minute, but I had a really interesting conversation with my stepbrother the other day and he is just all about the sibling theory. He goes, I'm a third child, so this is why I'm the way I am. Da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, and I said, Steve, I don't know if that's why, but he was all about it. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, haven't they... I don't know. They've done so much study on it, haven't they? And I do think whether or not you live out your life that way, I think certainly when you get back together with your siblings, it's like, let's all be our 16 year old selves together. Like that dynamic never, I don't think it ever goes away to the point where we went on holiday recently with my family and my husband was like, can we um, not have 16 year old you when we get there? Like, could we just have, could we just have adult you? But you you slip back into it in these roles. And when all of the siblings end up back in the house after this crisis that happens late in the book, it's driving Philida mad. And I think one of the loveliest compliments that I've had about it from a reader was, even though I haven't had this experience of being an older empty nester, I've always looked, you know how so many of us live overseas now and then you make these pilgrimages back home and you think your parents would be so grateful to have oh, you there. But Phil You've talks just about, disrupted their lives. Exactly. And she sort of like has had to create this existence for herself and then the children arrive. She pines for them to come back, but then they come back and disrupt everything and sort of, you know, lay waste to all of it and take advantage of her in every single way. And then they leave again. And, you know, somebody said to me, who's an older person who's experienced that thing, how did you know that when you leave, I'm desolated, but then, you know, I long for my children to come back and then I have to put it all back together. And if you had a, have a bad experience in that one intense week it lasts all the way until the next one which might not be for a year and this one said I just that's that's how I experienced this these adult children coming back and I thought that was so lovely that I hopefully had captured a little bit of that I think there are my mum included a whole generation of mums who have to deal with this and the sadness of having your kids away is so acute I mean, I'm at home now yeah. and I know that Disrupting between us, life. it's like very disruptive. It's almost like we're so strong when we're away. I keep it together. Mum keeps it together. It's great. And then we come back and we don't really have a framework for me being an adult in Sydney. Yeah, absolutely. And it all, it has to kind of erupt or, um, you know, there are going to be tears. Exactly. And there's one scene where the oldest sister you know, they're all in the kitchen and the, the coffee grounds have all gone and she just holds the bag out 
upside down to her mother. And she's like, this is all gone. But of course, in your own life, you just go and buy more. But suddenly, because you're in your parents' house, it's like, mum, can you please go and deal with this situation, even though I'm 37 or whatever, you know, the character is. So I guess that is sort of, that's the dynamic that I feel like we all slip into a little bit. I'm interested, like having explored motherhood in, you know, your memoir and the novel, is there, and you're writing a third book already, is that still that thread? You know, I feel like having spoken to lots of writers now, there are these themes that, all these rivets that we have to explore. Are you still exploring that? I think that now that my children are older, it's so much less intense. I know the teenage years are supposed to be intense, but I'm just not finding that quite yet. And I think a lot of it is just more like delegation. Whereas like when you have these little creatures who are totally dependent on you, it's knife edge, it's mundane, it's very manual. Now it just becomes more kind of emotional, I guess, but you're not so in demand. Like they're not going to die if you, you know, got in your car and kept driving. But so I don't know if I have so much to say anymore about that kind of motherhood, but I think they'll always be, I always start with a family and that's definitely what's happening with this third one. Although my goodness, the experience, I thought it would get easier from now on because I knew what I was doing. But actually with UB Mother, when it was a week to go, I just trashed the first 60,000 words and sat down and tried to compress them into 15,000 because it's like, this is wrong. This has always been wrong you know, like I'm just going to finally admit that it needs to all go. And Did you of, actually kind of trash the file and then delete the trash yeah, like file? highlight the first whatever it was and just like I, I'm sure I had it on paper somewhere, but I'm like this just, I just have to, you know, that kill the darlings thing. But now that I'm trying to do this, and that 60,000 was however long that took me to do. And then with this third one, like you're sitting there with an almost blank document and every sentence I'm like, I can't delete you because it'll halve my ultimate word count. So I'm being so precious about about these words. It's so intimidating. So you have a system, is that right? About how you sit down to the page every day? I did, Well, I made myself develop a system. Okay. Having So the, the experience of writing a memoir was not how I imagined it when even though I had already been signed to do it you have this belief that no one will ever see it and you need that that sense of this is actually private and this is this is never going to be released into the world so that you can write as freely as it requires you to and then when it came out I was just so shocked that you know that people would read it but more in my private life more you know, actual real people in my life. And so I felt a little bit exposed and a tiny bit, I guess, brutalized by that experience, which is all my own fault. Like I set myself up for that, um, but it was still a, a shock. And so it took me a really long time, you know, two or three years to want to do that again. And actually fiction's completely different. Um, although at the time I'd heard that writers are generally more honest in fiction and maybe in memoirs, people will say, you know, is that me? Do you base that on me? But in fiction, you actually did base it on them. Do you know what I mean? And you're less careful because you think, oh, this is fictionalized. They'll never guess. Um, 
and so I put it off for so long. And in the end, I was just like, I have to do this. You know, the fear of kind of HarperCollins, I don't know, imprisoning me because I was, <laughs> you know, indentured to them and I hadn't produced anything. So I developed this system. As a journalist, I'm, you know, very comfortable with a 700 word document. You know, I can do that in a day and I can kind of, I know what that looks like. And so basically after my publisher explained to me that you cannot sit there for six months polishing chapter one, that you have to have a complete arc before you can do anything. It's like, I'm just going to write 700 words a day, every day for a hundred days. And then at least I will have a manuscript and I won't, I put so many rules around it that I wouldn't let myself read what I wrote yesterday. Oh, you didn't. And to the point where I would open a new word document every day for the 700 words. So by the end, there's like a hundred, you know, documents on my desktop, just because I knew that if I saw it, if I saw how dreadful it was, to begin with um you know it's the Anne Lamott theory of the shitty first draft that you have to just let it be as bad as it is um wow would you dream about I'm just thinking of having the day's work and saving those 700 words and you know having your kids come home and having a your life till the next morning yeah was it, were you always thinking about it? Well, that's, I was, and that's what eventually made it easier because you never fell out of the process. But usually it was after my day's work. It was sometimes I remember sitting down to it at 10.30 at night and starting then, or I would write some of it in the car, parked outside violin lessons, you know, all of that wow. sort of thing, because it just, I had this debt of honor to myself that I would do this thing. And, and Jerry Seinfeld even talked about it, that if you can do something for a hundred days, you know, but that, that means that it has to be every day. And if you've done it for four days in a row, you want to do five. And then if you do five, you can't bear to, to not do six. And, you know, I had a star chart on the wall. Like I'm a, apparently a child who needs to see a motivational chart with stickers on it saying I've done it today, That's which I still excellent. have. Like I still, I rolled up the chart at the end and popped it in my drawer because now for the third one, I know I'm going to have to do the same thing, but it's a little bit like, here we go. Cause there was a lot of parental neglect that went on while I was doing that. There was a sign, there was a sign on my door that I, I stuck out for the children that said, before you knock, before you come in, ask yourself, can I solve this myself? Because I had to create a bit of a bubble to work in without interruption. I love these boundaries that you have with it was your children. Rigid. It was rigid. And I'm not really like that in the rest of my life, but it was just like there was only structure to save me from years more procrastination. And how did your kids handle you writing the book? Did they kind of say mum's doing this great thing or did they just think mum isn't around? No, they thought I'm hungry. Like where is yeah. mum? But I think like as you say, you I didn't depart at all from the world that I was writing. Like I was in it all the time. Like I would walk around the house and bump into furniture because I was so absorbed in this other world. So I think that was probably hard for them because I was so spacey. I couldn't remember anything that they had told me because, you know, Phil and Abby were consuming my kind of mental space. But I'd heard writers say that before, you know, before I'd tried this myself saying, oh, the characters take over and they start, you know, walking around in your mind. And I'm like, as if they do, like, that's ridiculous. And they do. It turns out they actually do. So I was very surprised that that's what happens in real life. Did you ever talk to your husband and laugh and go, huh, like <laughs> Abby just did this or Phil said this and he'd go, okay. Yeah, just- I think, I mean, isn't it so weird? And I think that's why, again, it's another reason why compared to the memoir, it took me so long to brace myself to do this because it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous indulgent thing that you're doing when everyone else has gone out to work 
to do a real job and you're sitting at your desk making up fake people and then making them walk around like you're playing dolls and putting words in their mouth. And I felt so embarrassed almost that I was trying to do this thing because you're not a novelist before you've produced a novel. So now I feel a little bit more legitimate doing it again. But at the time I was like, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed that I'm trying to do this. And I would even walk into bookstores at the time and be like, who are all you, how, did, who are all you people? Like, how did you do this thing? How are there so many people who've managed to do this enormous thing that I found so difficult? And even on those days where I would sit down to another, another word document and I hadn't written my 700 words and I would, I would just occasionally have I have to, you know, rock back and forth in my chair and be like, you can do this, you can do this, like stomach cramp. Like there was a lot of tears because I would just committed to the thing. It was so tricky. Were there any, I mean, there were probably many late nights where you hadn't done the word count. Yeah. And you had to say, I'm not coming to bed yet. Yeah, exactly. But I read a beautiful thing as a writer called Jen Hatmaker and she said and this is so true in my experience that writing's always instead of something not as well as and so you can't just fit it in around everything else you want to do there are pleasurable experiences that you will have to give up and you know in the acknowledgements of the book I just mentioned how often my husband had to do weekends and he was so lovely about it because he would you know they'd all be going off to the beach or doing something fun and and he would take a picture of like a cigarette butt or a band-aid in the sand and send to me and be like, it's not that great. You're not missing anything, even though I knew that I was missing something. But you have to be willing, I guess, to do that, to give up lots of other things. But now I'm obsessed with like um, the writer Barbara Trapedo, who wrote one of my favorite books called Brother of the More Famous Jack. She started writing when she was 40, when she had little children at home and she would get up at three o'clock in the morning to have those silent hours. And so there's all sorts of crazy things that writers have to do to carve out that space. You know, pop, she would pop back into bed at sort of seven o'clock in the morning until they demanded breakfast. And I just think this, you have to do something like that if you really want this thing that you say you want. I think that's such a good point because so many of us, me included, say we want to write a book or say we're writers, but until you commit to Actually it produce in that disciplined yeah. way. Yeah, plus you're always waiting for the time to be right. And there's a lovely Doris Lessing quote that I have stuck up somewhere that says, you know, if there's something you have to do, do it now because the circumstances will never be right. You know, they will never, the conditions will never be perfect. And so I guess, you know, five o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, you just do what you have to do. There are so many great books mentioned within the book, like the Mitford Sisters and Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah. And I'm wondering when they're obviously really significant to you if they made their way in there. Do you remember when you first discovered each one? I do. I think that although a lot of it is just what I was reading at the time, I don't think I can go back that far and sort of pull. I mean, the Mitfords you just remember as that time in your late teens when you read the entire Mitford canon. So, you know, then you can go back and dig things out. But most of the time, and it seemed to happen a little bit in the memoir as well, which I haven't actually picked up since it came out. But um, I remember there was, you know, quotes in there that just kind of make their way in because it's what's on your mind. Although I did find for myself, I had to really put fiction aside. I couldn't read other people's fiction, especially during that 
that 100 days because you were so terrified of accidentally plagiarizing it or you would eventually look back and be like, well, I was obviously reading a lot of Ian McEwan that day because, you know, I've tried to be him and I've tried to be, you know, Donna Tart on some other day, which I am incapable of, of being. But even that was a process I had to go through because I think that my literary tastes kind of run dark and I guess I'm snobbish and I, I love all of that sort of darker, heavier stuff. And so I sat down wanting to be that and I couldn't be that. Like I could only do this thing that I can do. Um, and that's why it's another reason I guess I was finding it more difficult than it should have been. And eventually my publisher took me out for lunch, which incidentally the lunches are the only motivation to keep going. That's why you want to be an author is for the lunches. And she was like, why are you trying to be what you simply cannot be? Just do this thing that, you know, insofar as I have a readership, it's what they expect from me she sort of said you don't value it because it comes more easily to you so just please just do that thing and then that's when I sort of let it be I guess not funny in a laugh out loud sense but that's when I let it be kind of more in that voice although I think I'm sure I could go back and find pages where I was still trying to be Donna Tart. <laughs> but that's interesting you talk about voice now because I think in all your work because you have written so many journalistic pieces and it's rare to feel that someone has a real point of view and a voice and it is funny. And I think we're all craving funny, amusing things yeah. with depth. Well, I remember one of the other really helpful experiences that I had when I was trying to let go of my literary aspirations and just let it be what it was, was I went away on holiday and I took Rachel Cusk's new one, I think it was Transit, which I, I just adore her. I always have. I found a life's work literally just after I had a baby in London it had just come out and I found it I remember on the Fulham Road at Pan Bookshop and it was just a revelation and I've loved her ever since then but she is like unremittingly relentlessly bleak like she does there is no redemption at the end of those books um and then I took at the same time Paradise Lodge which is by a British author called Nina Stibby who wrote Love Nina about her experiences as a nanny and they're just hilarious and I took both of those away and I read the Stibby twice and the cusk just sat there looking at me and I'm like we need funny like people are ha people do want funny especially at the moment my goodness and I sort of thought there is value to it um and so then I was sort of felt more liberated I guess to be part of that as, as much as I could you are I think we all I mean our tastes can vary so much and it's okay to have different things on our bedside table that sometimes we're ready for but I think more and more so many people ask me what book have you loved and sometimes you know there's so many but you think even if something's very um, complex and deep sometimes I don't want to recommend those books because they're heavy yeah you know? exactly and the world's so heavy yeah and I started like you know that my absolute darling that came out recently and there was so much buzz about it and I, I read the first few chapters and of course it was incredibly written but the story was so confronting that in the end I was reading it in the botanical gardens and I just sort of silently slipped it into the rubbish bin because I was just like I cannot I cannot read I don't want that in my mind like it's just I know that that's probably a little bit lame but I just couldn't I just couldn't absorb that I had no place in my mind to put that um that sort of experience in the novel and 
And I certainly didn't want to lie around the house with children there. So I'm like, maybe someone else will sort of, you know. And, but so I guess, yeah, funny books have meant so much to me. And I think they are probably the books that have actually shaped me more as a writer than, than the stuff which I so admire. But it's very much outside my ability and my experience. Are you writing any nonfiction at the moment? Is that just a constant for you? Um, I write, well, I still do a lot of magazines, but I can't imagine ever writing nonfiction in a memoir space ever again. Like I don't want to write about myself in such a direct way ever again. And as you know, now that the children are older, they have stories that are not mine to tell. And I feel like that would be such a violation of them as they become adults that I can't use that stuff anymore. Like maybe I could take little pieces and put it into fiction, but I just, I think I've said everything that I had to say about that experience. And I mean, maybe it will change. Maybe I'll write about being a really young empty nester, but I sort of feel like that for now, I'm happy to put that away and just kind of hide a little bit behind fiction. This is deviating from the book a bit, but I, uh, as I was reading some of your nonfiction, I found one of your GQ columns that was almost um, betraying the the female gender because it was all about uh, sex avoidance <laughs> techniques. Sex avoidance techniques. Oh, I remember it doing that one. It was so actually. funny. Oh, thank you. It was like, you know, like it was talking about how, you know, the sort of stereotype is, oh, I have a headache. And I'm like, that is just the beginning. We have so many more that we're using. We're using fake tan. We're using, you know, sort of watching a really sad show before we go to bed. We're using all these different techniques. And then our trump card is just that we're feeling a bit sad. And there's no answer to that. There's just it's feeling a bit so sad. Good. No, nothing exciting I feel is like I happen. must have done that. And often <laughs> I'd say, I'd add it, I'm just feeling a bit sad about mum. I'm just missing <laughs> so mum. So you can just roll over. And of course they go, those like con- combinations just for a man to think, let's just not get into it. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> if I'm going to try and progress it from here, I'm going to have to ask about mum before I can really hope for anything. Like a high concept haircut will get you a few months <laughs> off as well. So no, I, I sort of enjoy writing a little bit of that sort of thing. It's kind of fun. Are there any topics in our, are there any issues that you feel that you need to write about from having kind of absorbed this, um, like the world respond to what it is to be a woman? I think it's really tricky because as we sort of talked about, I've been out of step with my contemporaries for so long that I think it's made me really remote in my mind from whatever the zeitgeist is because the things that I've always been grappling with personally are not what other 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds have been doing. And so I think, I mean, to a degree, I think maybe all writers feel like they're on the outside looking in. Like the amount of times you hear writers saying, I always felt like an outsider. Clearly that is part of the sort of makeup of the job. So I observe it all, but I don't feel entitled to speak into that experience because it just hasn't been mine. I've been doing something kind of in isolation. So I think I, and I think, I feel like you have to be so careful before you weigh in on an experience that is so powerfully someone else's so I guess I'd be a little bit reluctant I think maybe I'll just try and pump out lols for the rest of my life keep going (laughs) please thank you and I won't try and be serious from now on I'll just I'll just do what I am on this planet to do which is talk rubbish well it's been so lovely 
well, I'm not going to say to talk rubbish with you because there was no <laughs> rubbish in it and there was so many interesting things. I want to end on, um, I hope it's not cold now, but we have this pot of tea that oh, I got we ready. We meant to drink Hoping tea. it was going to be cosy and tea for us. But can you explain, because I had never heard this term before, the significance of the title of the book? Which I had to fight to be allowed to call it that because it's an English expression which I didn't realise hadn't really migrated elsewhere. So I wanted to call it UB Mother, which means um, when you're in a tea drinking situation that whoever pours the tea is mother. So someone will say, no, 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 you be mother, you pour the tea. Um, And so I was sort of across that phrase and I wanted to call it that because so many themes in the book are you know, be my mother, teach me to be a mother. I don't want you to be my mother. Um, Stop mothering me. And so I guess that to me felt like it encapsulated that, but I had to go around sort of polling American friends and Australian friends of, have you heard this expression? And some had and some hadn't. But in the end, I feel like I always want to learn from from what I read. I don't have to be okay with every single reference. I don't need to know it beforehand. I'll, I'll learn it. I'll work it out and I'll be so grateful for acquiring a new phrase. So I guess for me, that's where it came from. And there's a little moment at the end of the book, um, which kind of brackets the whole experience where Phil, of course, has always been mother. And when they finally reunite many years later after this um, parting that happens between them, she sort of turns the handle of the teapot around and says, you be mother. And I guess that's what Abby's learned to be by the end. That's where it came from. But there was a stoush. We had a little stoush, me and the publisher, over whether I was going to be allowed to do it. I didn't know the custom going into the book. So I feel so lucky to have learnt that and I love it. I'm going to... Oh, you can use it from now on. But that's what I love so much about reading in general is you just take away all these precious little nuggets. And I, you know, I always write them down and everything that I learn from other people's fiction, I just think they're so precious. They're so precious. And I have a couple of friends, you know, we exchange (laughs) pictures of, you know, the book we're reading with sort of enormous highlighting and you just collect these things over the years. Well, thank you so much, Meg. Thank you. What a a pleasure. And um, because your book is out in Australia and all over the world, but what's the best place to get it? How do you get it? And then how can people follow you so they can read all your nonfiction as it comes out? Um, For anyone outside Australia, Kindle's the best at the moment to get the book. But if you're a paper reader, there are bookshops um, readings, which is our lovely, most institutionally famous bookshop in Australia will dispatch all over the world. But I I imagine the postage would be ruinous. So people should email me and I'll reimburse them. Um, But yes, you can, I guess, follow me on Instagram and Twitter to find all of the bits and pieces that I'm doing in magazines. Um, But thank you so much, Ange. I've had a lovely way to spend a morning. And now you can be mother and pour the tea. I will do. We'll hear the clinks. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did with Meg. I think the big takeaway from me, or to learn more about my friend, um, for one, was how hard she works and how... You know, on the show, we don't often talk to writers about their process, but with Meg, it felt really important to find out about her progression from journalist in London 
to novelist in Sydney. Also, I want to shout out to her because she just had a piece published in The New Yorker. And I'm going to link to that on the website so you can all read it too. If you want to follow along or leave Meg and I a message, please do so at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm.